Nobody's born incredible. People who do incredible things simply took the right steps. This is our journey. This is the hunt for incredible. All right, on this episode, we have a very special guest, Rich Summers. Rich Summers, within four years, went from zero to $60 million worth of assets under management. Within one year, grew his social media following to over 125,000 followers. And within less than a year, grew his podcast to being top 1% on Apple Podcasts. Rich Summers, thank you for being on the show. Gideon Spencer, man, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, you look good on the other side, man. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so we're actually uh, recording in Rich's studio. Thank you again for, for letting us shoot here. And uh, yeah, we just finished an episode of the Saturday edition of his podcast. Yep, we talked about uh, the new 5% down Fanny program for multifamily. I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of the folks out there, man. 100%, yeah, yeah. super cool. And we'll dive into the, everything that's going on in the real estate space, which I'm super looking forward to. But so everybody has some context Rich, would you mind sharing a, a brief story about how you got into this space? Yeah, man. So I grew up middle class. Um, my mom was an immigrant from Taiwan. I was always taught from a young age to go to school, get good grades, go to college, and get a job. And for the most part, that's what I did. Um, I have a background in sales. I was selling cars while I was going to college. And uh, that was my first taste of what it was like to control your paycheck to a certain extent. Got good at that. And I thought, man, I want to go sell commercial real estate when I get out of college. And I graduated in 2008. I interviewed with CB Richard Ellis and Grubb and Ellis, a couple commercial real estate brokerages. Uh, CBRE is still around. Uh, I don't think Grubb and Ellis is. Um, and everything was coming down at that time. The real estate market was crashing and uh, they pulled these internship positions and they told me, they said, hey, we love your hustle. We think you'd be great at it, but this is not the best time to get into the industry. So I found myself working on a car lot, wondering what am I gonna do with my life? And uh, I stumbled across a job as an air traffic controller for the federal government. And uh, I didn't know much about it, but uh, they said, hey, if you can pass a drug test, we'll hire you off the street, no experience needed. And um, I took it, I drove out to Oklahoma City and uh, never looked back. I ended up doing it for 11 years. And along the way, um, I discovered real estate. Um, one, of my, one of my coworkers was in the break room and he was talking about how he just closed on a fourplex in Cleveland. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever, I was like, how did you do that? Like, teach me how you did that. And he said, go read this book. It was the blue book by Brandon Turner on real estate investing. And I went and read it. And um, I started reading more books. I started listening to Bigger Pockets. I started listening to other podcasts in, in the real estate space. And I just became obsessed. And literally, I stopped going out uh, for a nine-month period. All I did was like study real estate investing and uh, just digest as much information as I could. I started going to networking events before I owned any real estate. And um, literally about nine months in, I was like, dude, it's time to take some action. So I cashed out my 401k. And that was my seed money to do my first couple deals. First deal was 11-unit building in Cincinnati. And uh, shortly after that, I partnered with a couple uh, partners that I had for quite some time. And we joint ventured on a 32-unit building in uh, Indianapolis. Bought that one for about 1.1 and fixed it up. A couple years later, we exited about 3.1 and uh, started a multifamily podcast. At this time, um, I was out of money, right? But I was, I was still working the air traffic job and I thought, let's start a, a multifamily podcast. And um, it was all about apartment investing. And we just literally once a week, we would interview folks in the apartment space. And um, it, it was one of the early episodes. I wanna say episode six or seven, we had uh, John and Tony Azar on. And these guys owned uh, at the time about 6,000 apartment units out in North Carolina. And we convinced them to uh, basically like mentor us. And so um, we did like a mentorship thing with them and they 
they literally taught us everything, how to like underwrite deals, how to source deals, how to raise investor capital. And uh, we ended up co-sponsoring a couple of deals with them. Um, the first one was uh, the Arbors townhomes, uh, 150 unit uh, townhome community in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then shortly after that, we did another one with them, 145 unit building, uh, also out in Greensboro called Timber Creek Apartments. And that was my first taste of like syndication and it changed my life. And, uh, you know, started uh, getting into the short-term rental thing kind of along the way, backed into a couple no money short-term rental deals and those were doing well. And so I thought, man, let's do more of these and started a, a co-hosting business to where we manage short-term rentals. And, um, you know, in 21, when the interest rates started compressing, cap rates started compressing, multifamily started to become a little bit uh, more challenging to find deals to pencil. Um, I thought, man, well, what, what if we did a boutique hotel? And so did the first boutique hotel in 22. And um, now we're kind of going all in on the space, man. And that's kind of my story in a nutshell. I love it. So you mentioned previously that people thought you were crazy for cashing in on your 401k. What, mm -hmm. what did you see that other people didn't see? And why did you feel so confident despite people saying, yo, don't do this? Well, you know, first off, I, I think uh, a lot of people told me it was too risky. Friends, family, coworkers, they all told me it was too, too risky to cash out the 401k. And, um, you know, looking back, you know, all those risks, Gideon, are real. So put some weight on them. But on the other side of the balance scale is another risk, and it's this. I could be 80 years old one day, laying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, kicking myself because I never fucking tried anything in life. How about that risk? That's a risk, too, that a lot of people don't allude to. And so to answer your question, you know, I think, you know, in the 401k and Wall Street, I think the traditional means of, of investing, um, you know, society tells us to play it safe, diversify, invest in your 401k. And I did all those things. I did it. And you know, I, I maxed out my 401k um, over an 11 year government career. And yes, it grew, um, but it didn't really grow as fast as they say it will. Right. And so um, I, I saw that side of it, but I can say like once I cashed it out, yes, it was scary, but I did it. And then I did that first deal and I saw, oh my gosh, it, it works, you know, and I was able to increase the value, do a cash out refi and recycle that, that money into more deals. But, um, and it gave me confidence to, to do more and more of it. But I say all this in that, you know, the, the traditional means of like investing in 401k is like, yes, it works, but it goes fucking slow. But there's a whole nother ball game out there and that's investing into commercial real estate. hundred percent. Yeah. A lot of people, they think of their 401k as a retirement plan. And that's what it's meant to do, but it's just a, it's a little nest egg sort of way. It's not actually gonna grow and make you wealthy. Like if you're trying mm -hmm. to level up and really accelerate that increase in net worth, then it's not gonna do anything for you. And yeah, it's like be mindful about whether you cash out of your 401k or not. And like you mentioned, like you do have to put weight on that risk, but in general, don't put weight on that 401k to actually save you and, and make you wealthy because that's not what it's designed for. The 401k was not built for you. It was built for Wall Street. That's that's the, the first thing to remember. Um, if you look at this, if you look at exactly what it is, you know, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of areas within the 401k system that I think are flawed. Um, if you look at the folks that have invested in the 401ks and you look at the average balance, the median 401k balance for folks that are in their 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, that number is very, very low. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but if you look at those numbers, it's very, very low. It's not enough to retire on, so it's a flawed system. But also what I don't like about it is, um, you know, Wall Street's collecting fees on your money. They don't tell you it, but if you look in the fine print, you know, they're collecting fees and they're making money while you sleep. Um, but also you can't touch this money until age 59 and a half. So think about 
you know, going and working and depositing your money into the bank, and then you going to withdraw it, and your bank or your credit union telling you, get in, you can't access this money until age 59 and a half. It's like, well, that's my own money. What do you mean I can't touch it until 59 and a half? So that, first of all, I think that's, that's very flawed, but to take it a step further, um, you know, at age 70, I've been thinking 72, 70, 73, uh, they will actually start penalizing you if you don't take your money out because they know that you're about to die and they need to, they need you to pay your income taxes on that money. Think about that. Mm. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is everyone can tell you the risks and see the risks, but only entrepreneurs can see the opportunities. Mm. So when, when people are thinking about, okay, I want to level up, I want to go take chances and I want to take risks in order to get that bigger reward. It's important to be mindful of whose advice you're taking. Right. If you're taking advice from people who they've only worked nine to five jobs and they've just they picked a company and they decided to climb the corporate ladder and that was their that was their path in life. If you're looking for a different path in life, then only listen to the people who have done what you are trying to do, the people who have already achieved what you're going for, because those are the only people who can tell you thoughtfully about what steps to take. That's so good, man. I, I know so many folks that try to get into real estate investing or they want to do something new. Um, and then they end up getting talked out of it by family members who have never owned any real estate. And, um, you know, I, I'm just lucky and glad that like along my journey, um, I didn't listen to the folks that told me that it was too risky uh, and not to do it. And um, luckily we have, you know, now, I mean, we got podcasts, we got social media, you got YouTube, you got all these networking events and we have masterminds. So you don't need to do it alone. And there's so many cool folks out there that have done what you're trying to do. So I always say, man, if you're new to something, uh, whatever it is, go find someone that's done it successfully and go start hanging out with folks that have done it successfully. And that's what's ultimately going to be the confidence to um, to do it. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, let's just say hotel, for example, right? Our hotel mastermind, you know, uh, you go to your family members and say, hey, I'm going to take down a 10 or 15 unit boutique hotel. They're going to tell you it's too risky. But if you go hang out with folks in our mastermind, they're going to be like, yo, you're thinking too small. You got you to do a bigger deal, you know? And so it's two different perspectives there. Yeah, 100 percent. And even with the mastermind, there were people who said, Gid, you're crazy for joining the mastermind and going mm -hmm. for hotels. Well, why don't you do another fourplex and see how it shakes out? Mm -hmm. And it's like, dude, life is short. And the difference between the small deals and the big deals is just a matter of who you're having conversations with. It's just a matter of thinking through the extra people that you need to bring on your team who can handle things like, you know, legal. Like you might need an SEC attorney in commercial, but you don't need one in in when you're buying a, a fourplex, mm -hmm. you know? So it's just like change up the conversations, change up how you're thinking and change up the rooms that you're getting into. So who are you surrounding yourself with? Who You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with, right? So find something like your mastermind where it's just a group of people who are stone cold killers who are aggressively going for something big and then it'll shift your perspective on what's realistic or not. Because a lot of people told me, Get, it's super risky and it's a scary thing to get into something big like commercial real estate. You could lose your shirt. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's far scarier getting to the end of my life and not having gone for those things. Absolutely. Um, life is short, but like you said, man, if you hang out with five broke people, you're going to be, well, hang out with four broke people, you're going to be the fifth. If you hang out with four real estate investors, you're going to be the fifth, right? Um, and like you said, man, life is, is, a, is very short. Um, and I, I think about that all the time, you know, average life expectancy age is 77. Um, I'm 38, right? So I literally have about 470 months till average life expectancy age of 77. And so when I, you know, have to make a decision on a deal to buy or 
uh, a certain thing to do or a business to start, it, it makes my decision a lot easier when I think of it in that term. Yeah, for every major decision, I apply a 40-year rule. Where okay. I think when I'm 70 years old, reflecting on this moment, what will I wish I had done? Mm. And that really helps me break out of the like the short-term consequences and, and start thinking about those long-term consequences. That's really good. Um, so you mentioned previously the podcast and you had Tony Azar and his brother John Azar, I think is the name. Yeah. Um, what did building that relationship look like to get them to actually mentor you? You know, we built some rapport uh, during the podcast, obviously, and, and, you know, that's one of the benefits of having a podcast is you get to conversate with someone for an hour, hour and a half, and build a genuine relationship with that person. Um, so after that, we uh, continued to conversate kind of offline, and we did a paid mentorship through them. Um, obviously, there's a cost to everything, but it was like the best money I've ever invested in my life, right? And I split it with other, my other two partners. At the time, we were looking for uh, a mentorship program, but we, we wanted to learn like from the guy or from the, the female. And a lot of these mentorship groups out there are massive and there's like all these different coaches. And so you're not actually working with the guy, right? And so with this one, what we liked was we'd be working directly with them and they didn't have like an official program. It was very like just kind of a one-off thing. So we kind of liked that. And um, yeah, worked out a deal and they liked us and they wanted to work with us. And we ended up, you know, co-sponsored a couple of deals with them, which is kind of a testament to like my partners and, you know, the rapport that they were able to build because had they not liked us, they would have never co-GP'd anything with us, you know? And so, you know, as you know, like in this space, like you need the, the net worth, you need the liquidity, you need the track record to get loans done and to get financing for these bigger deals. And they were able to provide that for us for the first couple. So you build a relationship with them, you get into real estate, and that brings us to today. What do you think about the current real estate environment and where do you think the opportunities are? So, you know, we're in a high interest rate environment right now and the Fed has all the control. There's a lot of bad news out in the marketplace, but if you look at the fundamentals, um, you know, from a supply standpoint, uh, we're five to seven million uh, units, housing units short of where the demand is right now. This is nationwide. Um, and if you look at the new construction, new construction is at the, the slowest it's been since the 1990s. The cost of build right now is expensive. The rate environment's not helping it. And so um, unfortunately, the only way to address the short of a house, shortage of housing is to build more housing units and it's not happening. And then if you look at the demand side, it's never been stronger. We have uh, you know, 40 million baby boomers that are supposed to be retiring in the next seven years, but these boomers aren't selling their homes and moving into retirement homes as early as they used to. They're living longer. Medicine's better, health is better. And so expectancy age is going up. And so um, these folks are staying in their homes. On the demand side also, you have the millennials who uh, are basically buying their first homes and are starting families for the first time. And so that's a huge uh, push. Uh, and, then, and then behind them, you have the Gen Zers. The Gen Zers, um, you know, they're moving out of their parents' house for the first time, they're renting apartments. And so you have this big phenomenon and this big shift in demographics that's creating the biggest demand for housing that we've ever seen in America. Um, and so right now the Fed has all the control with the interest rates, but this is a temporary thing. I believe once rates go down two years from now, uh, 18 months from now, I mean, it's all speculation in terms of when the rates will go back down, but they will go back down. And when that happens, um, we're going to see, we're going to see a ton of demand enter the marketplace. And so, um, you know, I'm not afraid to buy right now, as long as it's the right deal. Um, for me to buy a deal right now, I need two things. I need one, I need to be able to buy at a discount. 
Uh, and two, I need to be able to add tremendous value. And then three, of course, and this is something that I follow for all the stuff is I want to buy in a good location, right? You can't replace the location ever. Um, so if I can buy with those two things, I have no problem buying right now. Um, and then I can refine a cheaper debt on the back end when the rates normalize. Totally in the same boat. I am super aggressive in terms of buying right now because it's like, uh, I think it was Rockefeller who said, mm -hmm. buy when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own blood. Mm -hmm. Like right now we're seeing an environment where I think there's gonna be a massive shift in wealth towards the people who are seizing the opportunities and buying at a discount. And if you're able to, to raise the capital, then the deals are out there. And we're starting to see a lot more breaks in the environment, right? Like we're seeing a lot more um, properties, commercial properties that are foreclosing and lenders taking things back. And so it's the perfect environment to, to um, get, get great properties. I was just, we were talking the other day about a property that I came across where the broker was saying, hey, look, this person, they, it was a new build. They didn't know how to manage the property. And so they basically ran it into the ground. And right now the lender is just trying to get out what they put into it. Mm. So, or trying to get out what's left on the note. And I think the, the original owner had put about 30% down on the note. So you're basically buying a property for at a 30% discount that's brand new and all it takes is good management. And some of those numbers, the way that they underwrite is even if you don't have great experience in managing property, that deal will still underwrite with hiring a management company like yours or another one that's similar. And so you can turn that thing around really quickly just by pulling in the right people and finding those discounts. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and you just hit it on the head right there. Like deals are starting to shake loose. Um, I was just out in Houston. I had uh, Robert Martinez, the apartment rock star on my, on my podcast. He just got foreclosed on a $51 million multifamily note. He bought a larger apartment community in early 22 on, on floating rate debt. And the lender uh, is taking the deal. They just took the deal back. So, you know, that's one example. Um, the one that you're alluding to is that the deal in Portland. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then we're under contract. Our lender foreclosed on a brand new construction 40 unit boutique hotel up in Washington in Lake Chelan. And in that deal, um, the developer was not a hotel operator, built the property. Um, the lender took it back for, uh, you know, 70, 65% of, of the appraised value. They're selling it to us for 72% of the appraised value. And so, you know, to your point, man, the value add component doesn't always have to be renovations. It doesn't always have to be this heavy lift. It could simply be, hey, I'm just buying it at a discount. And my business plan is just to stabilize the property, implement some good marketing, some good operations, and then refinance some permanent debt, you know, uh, or sell for a profit. And like you mentioned before, there are 40 million baby boomers that are going to be retiring over the next seven years or so. We're seeing a lot of opportunities. I'd say about 15 to 20% of the deals that we underwrite, we're seeing that it's either somebody's retiring or their spouse passed away and they don't want to manage the property anymore, or maybe kids inherited the property and they don't want anything to do with hotels, so they're just trying to cash out on it. And so we're seeing a lot of opportunities where it literally just needs some touch-ups, new furniture, and good management and we can double the value of these properties. Mm -hmm. No, 100%. And you hit it on the head, man. A lot of these boomers that are retiring, you know, it's said that 25% of the boutique hotels out there, 10 million under, are, are owned by these boomers. A lot of them are not utilizing any technology. They haven't renovated their properties, properties in decades. And so it's a huge opportunity to come in and pick up these hotels at a discount and add tremendous value. And it's not just the hotels, it's all these other small businesses out there um, that a lot of them are, are literally just gonna dissolve because the kids don't want them. 
Um, and there's so many businesses out there that you know are performing, but they're not attractive to institutional capital. And if the kids don't want them, you know, you got a problem. Where are they going to go? They're just going to be dissolved. So I think it's a massive opportunity over the next seven years. It's going to be the greatest transfer of wealth in American history. It's about to go down. And, um, you know, the time to learn how to buy businesses and invest into real estate, hotels, all that stuff, the time is now because the opportunity is happening. It is. I think it's also the perfect storm because right now we're seeing an economic environment that makes it a great opportunity to buy real estate or any small businesses, really. But then there's also the added layer of, I think there's an extra opportunity for boutique hotels because boutique hotels are in this really great niche spot where they're bigger than what like the small fourplex investors would go for, but they're smaller than what the institutional investors would go for. So they're in this really great niche area where there's an opportunity to add tremendous value. Commercial assets are based on the net operating income and the cap rates of the market. And so you're able to increase the value drastically while at the same time not competing with super sophisticated investors. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm having these guys and gals on my podcast and everyone's doing it. Grant Cardone, um, Ryan Pineda, Chris Crone, all these guys are doing it and they're all going after these small businesses right now. And like you said, man, 40 million baby boomers are gonna be retiring over the next seven years. This is literally the biggest transfer of wealth in American history. The time is now. So for all those folks that are sitting on the sideline right now waiting what they're gonna do, they're gonna wait for you know the news, the bad news to kind of settle out before they make a move. I think that's a huge mistake. You need to learn the game now and um, take advantage of this, this huge opportunity that's about to go down. 100%, you don't wanna miss the wave. You don't wanna miss the wave. Mm -hmm. These opportunities come and go. You know, and so I think for anyone out there, it's like you got a decision to make. Like, are you gonna sit on the sidelines and watch other people, or are you gonna are you gonna uh, jump in and take action and and change your life? One hundred percent. So we've commented on on small businesses, and you have an amazing awareness of how businesses, the fundamentals of them, should work. Not even just in real estate, but in social media and marketing, brand development. Um, property management, and there are less conversations uh, that people have with you around that. All of when I was doing the research for uh -huh. this, for example, everything is about real estate, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think about building teams, because like we mentioned in the intro, you blew up a podcast in less than a year, top 1%. You blew up a, a, a brand on social media, your personal brand, and then also like the brand of your podcast and your management company and everything else. Um, how do you think about building teams and seizing these opportunities to invest in areas outside of real estate? I, I think team is everything. You know, um, the bigger the thing you build, the bigger the team you need. And all these folks that I've had on the podcast um, that are ahead of where I'm at, they're doing bigger things than I'm doing. Um, the number one thing that I'm learning from them is like, you need to delegate more in order to grow. And um, you need to, I think it's very important to figure out exactly what your highest and best use is and also what you enjoy doing. Uh, those are equally important because, you know, if your highest and best use is not what you enjoy doing, you're going to get burnt out. And so for me, my highest and best use really is, um, you know, as I grow, I, I think it's, it's the content, obviously, but, you know, obviously being a visionary. I'm a visionary naturally. Like the ideas, I don't like to implement though. I need like an integrator, right? And so, um, you know, 
with what I'm doing right now, I, I realize what my highest and best use is. And I realize that I'm probably doing, my hands are in too many buckets as it is, even though I do a good job delegating and I have an amazing team, I'm still trying to fine tune that so I can continue to work on my highest and best use. And ideally in a perfect world, um, I just focus on one or two things and everything else is delegated out, play the visionary role and, um, and that's it. How do you pick who's on your team? Because you, you have an amazing team. I've had the mm. opportunity to work with a handful of people on your team, and every single person is fantastic at what they do. They're great to work with. They're always positive. How do you go about thinking of, of a hire? So if you open up a role and you're talking to different people, what sort of things do you prioritize, and how do you judge who would be a good fit? First and foremost, it comes down to character and personality. So you know our team is all positive people. Um, we don't work with people that have negative vibes, people that are judgmental, uh, anyone that, um, you know, it gets emotional. It's not going to be a fit for us, right? Um, so that's first and foremost. Um, secondly, we, we try to go higher uh, through some of these third party platforms like ZipRecruiter and Indeed. We haven't had a lot of success uh, doing that. Um, so we've actually found a lot of success hiring from within. I would say Parker is like the exception. Parker's over here. He's our, our content manager filming this podcast right now. Um, and we hired him um, through one of those platforms and, and now is a success. But that said, most of the other folks on the team I had known for quite some time and I went and poached them from their current positions to come work with me. And, and that's where I found the most success because, you know, in all reality, most of these folks that are always looking for new opportunities, they're looking for new jobs uh, on these platforms and they've had maybe nine positions over the last four years. I don't know if I necessarily want that person on my team. I want someone that's going to be committed um, and that's going to be here for the long haul. And, you know, all the other folks on our team, like they were in other positions to where maybe they weren't necessarily the happiest, but they were they stuck it out because they were loyal and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, had conversation with them. Some of them weren't down to come over right away. Like I was not ready or they weren't ready. Um, but over time, I was able to pull them over and and dude. I'm, they're great people, man. I'm super lucky to have them, and um, you see them in there, and they they work their asses off, and, and they're committed to the long haul and the big picture, and that's what I'm looking for, man. Like, I want to go to the top, um, and the, the best part is this is just the beginning, um, and I'm not going to do it alone. They're, they're going to they're gonna come with me. We're going to do it together. Being successful in so many different areas, like the podcast and social media, what was the, the breaking point for catalyzing growth in those areas? There are a lot of people who have been on social media for five years and they have a fraction of what you have. What would you say was that aha moment or something that you implemented that you attribute to such great success? I think it all comes down to a couple things. First and foremost, I don't think everyone is meant to do social media. And so I think if, if you're a boring talker, um, and you're not exciting, I think it's gonna be hard to grow on social media. That said, if you have it, which you have it by the way, then it comes down to actually like strategically structuring and producing your content to give it the best opportunity to get saves and shares to where people are gonna wanna engage, which is ultimately what's gonna set off the algorithm. And so, you know, I always say the best way to do it is just start committing to putting out one piece of content for 90 days. And at the end of those 90 days, like you're gonna put out a lot of shitty content that doesn't work. And you're gonna put out a few pieces that do really well. And so after the 90 days, now you can go back and see what did well and what didn't do well and do more, double down on the pieces that did well and cut out the pieces that didn't do well. 
And I think if you can do that, you will start to grow. Um, and also, you don't need to like, you don't need to go out there and guess. Like, figure out. And I have four or five, uh, you know, entrepreneur, real estate investors that put out content in the space that I study and I look up to. And I, you know, we go and look at their content and we see, okay, what works and doesn't work, which topics get a lot of views um, and a lot of engagement. And then we'll go and like, you know, hone in on those topics and we'll put our own twist on it. So you're not always guessing, right? Um, and so I think if you can, you know, work on your own skills, be interesting enough to where people want to engage, be relatable and be real, right? There's a lot of people out there putting out content, but they've never like, you know, done certain things. And so obviously you want to be authentic. You want to be someone that, you know, people can relate to and then have strategy and always be looking to get better. I think a lot of folks just put out content, but they're not looking back to see what worked and didn't work. And they're not applying any strategy to like putting out content. I think if you do those things, you'll grow. And once you get that first clip, that's the hardest part. But once you get that first like one to go viral and you get that first set of three, four, 5,000 followers, that's when you really start to grow. The number one mistake that you can make as a content creator is to buy your followers. I think I see it out there all the time uh, where folks like buy all these followers, right? And you can tell because if you actually click on the reels um, and you can see how many shares that they have. So if someone has like, let's say, um, a million followers and they're putting out these reels and one, there's not a lot of views or two, you can also buy views, right? But how you can tell is the number of shares. So if someone's got all this, like these likes, let's say 5,000 likes on a reel, but they got no shares. That's, that's fake, right? And I think that's the worst thing that you could do as a content creator that's trying to build. I see it all the time because the way the algorithm works is like when you put out a piece, it's going to put it out to like two, two percent of your followers and it's going to see how it does with that first two percent. And if they engage, then it will push it to the next group. And then if it does good with that group, it will push it out to more and eventually it will go viral. And that's how you really um, start to grow because it's going to put your stuff in, in front of new people. Now, when all your followers are fake, um, that first 2% is not gonna engage because these are like bots, right. right? So no one's gonna engage. And so you are you could put out the best piece of content. And if your followers are fake, it's never gonna make it past that first 2% because those are fake people. So it's the worst thing that you could do. And I see it out there a lot, unfortunately. It's like, you know, you're, you're really selling yourself short when you do that. And you're, you're blinding yourself too because you can't actually see what your true engagement looks like because you're not engaging yeah. with the real Yeah, you don't audience. have real analytics. Yeah, it's I all mean, fake. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of beginning to push content out was actually seeing the audience take shape. Mm -hmm. And you you told me right because you we were on the call and you're like, bro, you got it, you got to get content out. And I was like, all right. Mm -hmm. So I started pushing content out, and you told me going into it, you're gonna lose followers at first. Yep. But then it's all right because you're gonna be gaining and losing. I was so stoked when I saw that I started losing followers because mm -hmm. I was like my audience is actually taking shape. It's, it's forming into people who actually want to listen to what it is that I'm putting out yeah. there. And having that visibility is invaluable. You know, releasing content and then seeing that it's a total flop. All right, now I understand my audience a little bit better. Releasing something and it's on fire. All right, now I understand the audience and the algorithm and everything else a little bit better. So actually maintaining that visibility and getting that tight feedback loop of what your audience is actually looking for is so much more valuable than looking cool to somebody on the surface by saying, oh, look, I have a million followers, mm -hmm. even though they're all fake. Yeah, 100%. And then, and that's, and I tell the girls on the team, like, we were like, they were trying to get like some influencers to come out and do some content on the new hotel that we're launching. 
And so they're like, well, let's see like if these is like a, is a legit audience or not. And so I was showing them how to do it. It's like, yeah, you just click on these people's reels and see how many shares they have. And you can tell really quickly. But all that to say is like, dude, you're right. Like I, I lost a lot of followers when I started putting out content. My followers probably went down by 25%. And so for most people, that's probably discouraging, right? But you're gonna lose the followers because you know, people that followed you in high school, like they're not interested in the real estate investing or whatever it is that you're putting content in, out on. And so it makes sense that you lose them, but you'll eventually start to gain followers that are following you for the content that you're doing. And ultimately that's what you want because that's what's gonna set the algorithm off, right? So if like, you're doing real estate content, you want your followers to be into the view for the real estate because they're going to engage and that's what's going to push your content out to new people. Um, but dude, there's so many other benefits that come from putting out content in that like I didn't even thought was possible, you know, just connecting with a lot of folks like, like people that I, I mean, I, Tariq El Musa just reached out to me like before we recorded this one. He's like, hey, like, let's let's partner on a boutique hotel. He's like, I'll bring capital, I'll bring marketing, like whatever. It's like that kind of opportunity is only there because of the content, because of the podcast. Um, attracting better team members, like that's another one. And you know, you're you're you got your podcast, and um, as this grows, like you're going to continue to see like the benefits um, come to fruition. But you know, all these conversations that we're having with people, right? You have these hour-long conversations with people. You're building the rapport, and you exchange contact information. Um, if you ever need anything down the road, like that individual is going to take your phone call. They know who Gideon is, you know, and that's powerful. You never know what those opportunities um, are going to lead to. You never know what kind of doors are going to open up for you down the road because of that. And then also a lot of like you can leverage a lot of social capital, right? Because, you know, you had Grant Cardone on or you had some of these bigger players on. It's like, OK, now it's easier to attract guests. It's easier to raise capital. It's easier to raise, you know, all sorts of different things. And so all opportunities become easier as you continue to grow and um, it starts to snowball over time. And so I don't know. I'm excited. The best part is, is like, you know, for you and for myself included, like this is just the fucking beginning. I tell the team all the time, I'm like, guys, this is just the fucking beginning. And um, I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, I mean, e even with like the podcast, like you're saying, the relationships that are built, it's amazing the people, A, that mm -hmm. will say yes to talking to you because you have a podcast. Like one of my favorite things to do is to ask people questions and to understand how they operate and how they did things that enabled them to do things that seem so out of reach for most people, but it was within reach for them. But of course, nobody wants to you know, hang out at a cocktail party and talk about themselves for an hour, mm -hmm. right? But you put a you put a mic in front of them and you share them with your audience, and then now everyone's down to talk about themselves and mm -hmm. their story. Not only that, but at the end of each recording, I always ask the guests, is there anybody else that you feel like would be a good fit for the show? And the connections that I've gotten on top of that are people that are such high caliber who would have never taken my call if I just called and said, hey, I want to pick your brain. Mm -hmm. Like That drives me nuts when people say, like, oh, I want to pick your brain. Like, no, yeah. no high caliber player wants to have their brain picked for an hour, right? They have big and important things to do. But if you say, hey, I have attention and I can bring attention to you and you can sell whatever you're looking for or whatever value you find from being on the podcast, then most of them are so far more likely to be down. The perfect example is this. Look at Joe Rogan. Um, Joe has done three episodes a week on his podcast every single year for 14 years. If you go back and listen to early Joe Rogan podcast, first couple of years, like he didn't have the best equipment, he didn't have the best video. Uh, he wasn't the best host. And the quality was not very good, but he stuck to it. And he did what 99.99% of folks will never do. They're not willing to do it because it's a lot of work. And at first, you don't see any return on it. It's just a lot of sunken time. It's a lot of sunken money. And you don't see any return. And so most folks give up. 
Um, I don't know what the percentage is, but I saw some stats. It's like 90% of podcasts die before they even get to like episode 20, something crazy like that. And so Joe was able to commit to three episodes a week for 14 years. And now look at him. He's able to get presidents to come on. He's able to get Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, world's best athletes are willing to come on his show and hang out with him because he got the attention. He's got a 50 some million dollar Spotify contract. He's all, all that ESPN stuff that he's doing with the UFC. I mean, that's all because of the podcast. It's massive. And, and think if Joe was raising private capital for real estate or whatever business venture, like he could probably raise whatever, like money would not be an issue. And that's a perfect example. And so, and Joe's just a real dude, you know? And, you know, even today, it's like, I don't think he's like, has all this like crazy techniques in terms of like being the best podcast host in this. He's just himself says whatever the fuck he wants to say, but people love him because he's a relatable guy, you know? And the other thing I wanted to say is we're talking about like what makes someone good for growing an audience. I would say all these folks that I've had on the podcast that actually have big audiences, the one thing that I notice about them that's different than all the other people that come on my podcast is when the, when the cameras come on, they like turn they turn it into another gear um it's almost like a little bit of like a little bit of acting and not that it's not genuine it's just when the cameras come on they just turn it into another gear and you almost have to because you want to be engaging you want to be exciting you want to be someone that you know people are going to gravitate towards and that's why they're building their audiences right like brand Cardone's very chill off camera ryan pineda is very chill off camera but as soon as the lights come on they 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 turn it into another gear. And, and I think it also takes a little bit of that. Not saying that it needs to be fake. It's not acting. I'm just saying there's just another gear when the, cam the cameras come on. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 what is the recipe to grab attention, mm -hmm. right? And you can be authentic with that added component of, okay, this is what grabs attention so that I can show people the authentic version of me. Yes. Yeah, it's also a beautiful testament to falling in love with the process and sticking with the process. Right, like Rogan, he recorded episodes whether people listened or not, and then mm. it grew into something big. Same thing with us hunting for boutique hotels. Like mm -hmm. you'll maybe land like half a percent of the hotels that you actually like underwrite and look into. Totally. And it's just a matter of do you are you able to fall in love with the process and not get discouraged with the outcome when that feedback loop is so low, mm. is so slow. Same thing with like my podcast. I don't even at this stage, I don't even pay attention to the downloads. Yeah. I'm just getting my reps in. I'm learning, okay, how do I want the podcast to sound? How do I want it to flow? What type of vibe do I want from it? What type of guests do I want from it? And making sure that I'm only having conversations that I want to have with people that I want to have it with so that people can see that authentic connection and authentic excitement that I'm having to have the conversation and just focusing on the process, getting into the reps. Same thing with, with social media. Like you said, hey, post once a day mm -hmm. for 365 days, and I'm on it, man. You I'm are. On it. I don't care if I flop. I don't care if a, if a post blows up. I don't care how many followers I have. What I care about is getting in that that rhythm and flow and, and getting it cranking out. And then now we're at the, the stage where we are fine-tuning and saying, okay, what is going to catch the most attention? Because that's, that's part of the fun, right? It's like a, a puzzle that you're solving and figuring out. Um, but yeah, just falling in love with that, that process and the systems while at the same time having your goal so that you're going in that right direction. Absolutely, man. And, and you nailed it right there. Like uh, the feedback loop is everything. Um, jumping in and, and committing to something is, is big, but the feedback loop is massive. And I think that's why 
we got a big issue with the public school system is because there's not really any feedback loop. You know, I, I at least for myself and a lot of folks out there, they're not in a school. You know, and and I always thought. Unfortunately, like society teaches us, if you're not good at school, you're not good at getting good grades, you are a failure. Uh, if you don't go to college and get your MBA, you're a failure. Well, I didn't like school because there was no feedback loop. But with business and real estate, you know, you're talking about putting out content, like there's a much shorter feedback loop, which I love. You know, if, if we're going a certain direction within our business and it's not working, like we'll pivot so quick. Like we've made, we've made pivots this week within the business to where I'm like, oh, this wasn't working, but this is, let's go this direction. And so um, I love business, I love real estate and entrepreneurship because the feedback loop is much, much shorter. And I think that's most folks in life. When the feedback loop is too long, it's two, three, four, five years, um, there's really nothing to go off of. And I think that's why you see so many folks in America that try something new and they don't see any success for two or three months and then they pivot to something else. And they go this direction for two to three months and then they pivot to the new thing. And it's like the bright, it's like, what do they call it? They call it the uh, the shiny object syndrome. And the shiny object syndrome is when, you know, you're always chasing that new bright, shiny thing. And after two, three months when it gets boring and you realize it's not easy, they go chase the next shiny object. And then three months later, they go chase the next one. And you actually never allow yourself to get good at one thing because you're just always chasing that new thing. And I think that's another, you know, part of being successful, actually like reaching some sort of place of success is to actually do something long enough to where you actually get some progress. You know, I think with everything that we have today, whether it's, you know, technology and social media and a podcast and all these mastermind groups, you can literally learn anything you want in a relatively short amount of time if you just stick to it for longer than two months, right? Um, if you can stick through something, through the parts where it gets boring, through the parts to where it's not exciting anymore, um, and get out to the other end, it might take you six, nine, 12 months, but I guarantee you, you know, once you close on that first boutique hotel, like that's gonna change your life. Or once you, you reach a little success within that new business model, it's gonna fucking change your life. You know, I think a lot of people see these folks like, um, you know, the Grant Cardones of the world and all these other successful people, Elon Musk, where they have, you know, 15 streams of income. Well, it's like, they didn't get to where they are with 15 streams of income from day one. They got good at one thing and then once they made their success and had all this money, then they started diversifying into other things. Then they started investing into other asset classes, but they didn't have 15 streams of income from day one. Otherwise you're never gonna get to where they are. You totally. know what I mean? Yeah, one of my least favorite or most frequently misused quotes is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting d different results. Mm. But it doesn't totally apply because if you're chopping down a tree like, yeah, you do the same thing over and over and over again, and then you reach a threshold at which something breaks, and then now you've you succeeded. Like, to your point, a lot of people, they're working towards something, and when they don't see results right away, they say, oh, I must be doing it wrong, and they pivot. But really, if you just stuck with it long enough, you might reach that breaking point. A beautiful example that I heard in Atomic Habits is, it's like if you have an ice cube in a room that's 28 degrees, if that room goes up by one degree, nothing happens to the ice cube, goes up, Another degree, nothing happens to the ice cube. And so it might look like nothing's changing, but once it hits 32 degrees, now the ice cube starts melting. Mm. And so it takes time and momentum to build up in a lot of areas of life that once you actually reach that threshold and you break through it, that's when the magic happens. That's when things really start moving for you because you stuck with it. That's so good. I, I love that analogy. And um, yeah, I, I think 
a lot of folks would see a lot more success in life if they just stuck to something for long enough. You know, Warren Buffett says, you know, some of the best Wall Street investors in the stock market are the ones that literally like f they buy stocks and they forget they even have them, <laughs> you know, because they're not moving it in and out of the market and they're not getting bored and they just let it ride. And sometimes you just stick to one thing for long enough, you're, you're going to do well over the long term. So with everything that you have going on, how do you manage your time to make sure that you're able to give everything the attention that it needs without dropping the ball anywhere? Dude, I'm still trying to learn that as, as we go. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's something that's, that's been a challenge for me. Time management is huge, and I think prioritizing certain things is big. Um, we use uh, EOS. Um, if you've read the book Attraction by mm -hmm. Gina Wickman, we use EOS uh, here. Uh, at Summers Capital, and that's that's been huge in terms of like staying organized and you know staying on top of things that need to get done. So basically, we do a, what's called a level ten meeting every Monday, um, and everyone on the team has their own KPIs, um, including myself. Um, even Parker has his own KPIs, and uh, we measure those every single week. And um, literally everything, everything within the business, we measure, and so it's a good way to know like, hey, if you're hitting your KPIs, the future of the business is is going to grow. But if we're not hitting our KPIs, like we're not going to be growing. And so it's a good indicator to see kind of what the, the next week's going to look like or maybe the next month. Um, so that's good. And then obviously if there's any issues, um, you know, obviously it's great when things are working smoothly, but with all businesses, there's going to be issues. And so we welcome everyone on the team to talk about them. And, um, you know, if, if something's an issue, we'll, we'll discuss it. Um, communication is, is huge. And so um, we'll work through the issues. We'll come up with solutions. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll help each other get through a lot of the stuff that, that maybe isn't going as smoothly um, as we'd, we'd hope for it to be. And sometimes, you know, maybe there's an issue and it's like, hey, maybe the solution is maybe we just don't need to do that anymore. Maybe that's the solution, right? And so you just never know what the solution is. But um, in terms of the time management, man, it's, it's something that I was, I'm, I'm learning how to do as I grow. Um, I feel like saying no. Uh, to a lot of opportunities is something that I've learned. Um, and so I, I say no to like 90% of stuff that like comes my way now. Um, you know, I would say time blocking, like if it's not in my calendar, I don't do it. And um, I would say from like a weekly schedule standpoint, for me, I like to front load all the meetings in the front end of the week. So Mondays are typically a lot of meetings. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we do our mastermind stuff. Um, in the mornings, I have more meetings typically on Tuesdays. Wednesdays typically reserved for content. Um, so typically doing two to three podcasts on a Wednesday. Um, we host our meetups on Wednesdays as well. And then Thursdays, um, a little bit lighter. I like to do some strategy planning on Thursdays. And then uh, Fridays, I try to keep very light. Um, one thing that's interesting is next, next year, we're talking about going to a four-day four work week um, and taking Fridays off entirely. And so um, I think that with the shorter work week, we can actually be more productive overall um, and have an extra day to the weekend. So we'll see. I told the team about it. They're all super excited about it. So um, we're going to figure out between now and the end of the year if that's something that we're going to move forward on. Um, but I'm kind of leaning towards that direction. And what I think enables so much of that, something that I value highly, I've seen you value highly, and a lot of other peak performers, is your time. Like you understand that time is our most precious commodity, and you're very protective of your time, even to the point where you have a story where, where you took a girl out on a date, and then <laughs> you're like, hey, or why don't you, you go ahead and tell the story? 
Um, yeah, so uh, there's I'm very direct, right? And as I get older, I've learned that like being direct is, is huge. Um, and so there's been a couple incidents where I'm going to call it an incident. There's been a couple opportunities to where I've gone on um, some first dates and, um, you know, I wasn't feeling the vibe for whatever reason. And uh, instead of going through with the date, I decided to call it short after, you know, a drink and um, ended up basically just saying, hey, like, you know, I appreciate you coming out. I, I don't think that we should continue the date. Um, what are the chances I could call you right home? And yeah, it, it sounds very direct and it is. Um, but both of those uh, examples actually led to um, a couple of the girls now on the team, you know, and so um, in both of those examples, I ended up calling the date short um, and then still wanted to go to the Padre game. I'm, I'm a season ticket holder, holder for the San Diego Padres. And both of those dates, I was going to go to the game with them. But after a drink, um, I decided that I didn't want to bring them to the game. And so um, in a nice way, I, I, I got them a ride home. And um, two of the girls, Alex Johnson on the team and Andrea, um, I called them. I said, hey, uh, I ended my date short. Do you want to come to the game with me? And both of them came out. And um, from those uh, those games, the conversation started about them coming and working on the team. And now they're both on the team. So, um, you know, I, I think the takeaway is really like life is short. You know, time is limited. I don't want to waste uh, someone else's time. And I, I definitely don't want them to waste my time either. Totally. And I yeah. think good, good things happen when you are direct. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. I actually I, I had a post. This was one of like my first posts that I got a lot of flack for. Where what was it? I was I was basically I, I went on a run and was just sharing some of my thoughts around who you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. And in, in the post, I basically said, look, if somebody is not like developing you or inspiring you or like fulfilling you in a way, then like kindly, but like shape them out of your life such that you are able to develop yourself in the direction that you're trying to go. And conversely, if you're not adding value to someone else's life, if they want you out of their life, but of course in a kind way, then that's totally fine also. Like I'm a firm believer, you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. And I take that very, very seriously where I think, okay, if I'm gonna be spending time with this person, I wanna make sure that we are going the same direction in life. And it's not so much like a, transactional what can you give me mm -hmm. so much as hey how can we together build something and grow and, and develop ourselves in a direction such that we all win and we can add value to each other and develop each other um, in a great way and so I posted it out I think a lot of people they maybe like misunderstood me because I wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. saying like cut people out who don't serve you right because again like I don't see it see it as a, as a transaction um, but I do very much see it as you the if you're hanging out with somebody they are making up you. Like you oh, totally. are what they are. Totally. And so just be mindful of, of who you are and what you are and, and how you're refining yourself. And part of that is being honest with yourself. You know, even if you're not, if you don't wanna have a hard conversation with them, you don't have to, right? But just being honest with yourself to say, okay, how are the people that I'm surrounding myself with impacting me and shaping me because I am what they are. Mm -hmm. I agree, man. And, you know, I, I think for anyone out there, if you're, you're looking around your, your friend group and you're like, you're the only one that wants to, you know, start a business or invest in a real estate, no one else is making moves. It's like, well, you know, maybe that's not the group that you need to be taking with you on that part of your life. And, you know, to your point, like sometimes and it, it sounds it sounds short, but it's true. Like sometimes you there's a point where you have to cut people out of your life in order to go level up. I know I've had to do it like I've had to cut a best friend out of my life. And, um, you know, I I was able to continue to grow and I replaced that friendship with other 
new friendships that were more aligned with where I was trying to go. And so um, I think the takeaway really, and I didn't learn this lesson until like the last, maybe it was about two and a half, three years ago, but the takeaway for me was, uh, if someone is no longer aligned with the person that you're trying to become, it's okay to remove them. And you don't need to remove them forever. You just need to remove them for a little bit so you can go on and do your thing. And then maybe back later on in your journey, you can come in and, and, and bring them back up. But um, if there's toxic people, judgmental people, and negative people, like I don't, I don't have that in my life at all. I used to be around that kind of stuff when I was younger and I thought it was normal. I didn't know any better. Now I've cut all of that out of my life. I've removed it entirely. And so literally like, because I'm only around positivity now and like inspirational people, people that are trying to lift each other up, the second I meet someone that like gives me just one little hint of like negativity or being judgmental, I recognize it right away and I fucking like, I can't do it. Like I just, I can't do it. Yeah. Not, I'm not interested. And now you have more of the energy and have built something greater that you can give back to the world and mm. pour out more into other people because you've had less sucked out of you. Mm. Yeah, I went on a golfing. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. I went golfing with a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends, actually. I had him on the podcast, Dylan Wright. And uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, we were golfing and I had the epiphany about like why we became such good friends. And I, from that moment on, I decided. I am not going to pick friends based on where I am in life. I'm going to pick friends based on where I'm going. So I don't care where you sit on like the social hierarchy or where you are in life. If your goal is to end up in an area similar to me, then we'll hit it off just great. And I've started building a lot of incredible relationships in my life with based on that mentality and have been inspired by and had the opportunity to inspire others to actually develop and go in those directions. I also love what you're saying about how people will respect it more when you are direct with them. Right out of college, I got a job at a super killer company and uh, I worked with this guy, Daniel. He, he was actually my boss, mm. super smart guy. And he was incredibly blunt. He mm. was from England, had a posh British accent, super mm. like straight to the point. And I'll never forget, there was one day I was, I was chatting with him and uh, having a conversation, I don't remember what it was about. It was about like ice plunges or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just really don't care about what we're talking about right now. And I loved it. I was like, dude, you just saved me so much time. Now I know you're not gonna waste my time. Like now I know that I can confidently talk to you and you're into what we're talking about. And now I know that I have a past in the future, I can be direct with you. Like, we don't have to waste time sugarcoating things and guessing what each other are saying. And he ended up being one of the greatest bosses I've ever worked with. We became super close friends and got to build some really cool stuff, all because we were super direct and didn't beat around the bush. And like that. my respect for him went through the roof right in that moment. I love that. Do you think he would have said that to you if he wasn't your boss? Um, like if we were just friends just or something? Just like hanging out, yeah. I think so. Okay. In, in general, that was his personality type. Like mm. I, I saw him say that type of thing to everybody. <laughs> okay. Like literally, like he was one of those people that he would be so direct that sometimes it would suck the air out of the room or people were like, whoa, whoa I can't believe he just said that. Yeah. But he was always like gracious with it, right? Like mm. he wasn't trying to be a jerk or anything. He was just very candid with what he was thinking and he, he said it directly. And I don't think everybody took it as well all the time as I did like in that moment I loved it I was like bro thank you for saving all of our time right now 
Um, other people, I, I've seen some feathers get ruffled where they're like, oh, he didn't have to be that mm -hmm. blunt or whatever it was, right? But like the right people for you, I mean, it's all about how you package it, right? So be mindful. Not everybody can handle that type of directness. Um, but surrounding yourself with people who you can be candid with and, and courteous with and save everybody's time, huge. they will respect you more. Yeah. And I think most folks are nervous to be direct, you know, and so um, I, th I think a perfect example is a, of this is like a lot of um, a lot of people, uh, woman and man, like if they're, let's say, just dating someone for a little bit and they're no longer interested, instead of just having that conversation and being direct, they might just kind of like slowly like fade off. You know what I mean? Um, but from what I found, man, like and this is not just dating, but this is like literally everything in life, business. Um, investing real estate you know when I'm direct yes maybe it's not the news that's that person wants to hear but like to your point they will often come back and be like man I fucking respect you for being direct and they will often have even more respect for you than before and so I don't know man at the end of the day life is short you know we could die tomorrow and um, with that it's like fuck like why not just be upfront why not just be direct with everything communications everything and I'm a big believer in that yeah. 100%. Well, Rich, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so uh, Instagram, everything's on Instagram, at Rich underscore Summers. Um, I've linked there all the stuff, Summers Capital. And then the podcast, the Rich Summers Report, we're on Apple, Spotify, and all the major platforms. Awesome. Good stuff. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate you having me on, my man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.